The world that you can seek must come from a world that is unseen first. So it must come from a thoughtful intention. And then it also comes from a, what my people call pulses or energies in the body or a heartfelt process, right? So those two combine to connect you to something greater than who you are, the world that you can see. And so for our people, when you understand that, artists were incredibly significant because they brought forward the world that you can't see and the information of the world that you can't see through our grandparents energies that we refer to as butts those are the artisans right the ones that connect us through all time that sacred string of time that's maria monteo she's a member of the popedi nation who lives in toronto and emigrated with her family from guatemala the Popedi are one of the many groups that are the contemporary descendants of what we call the Maya. She is one of the experts that will educate us about a precious Maya object in the collection of the Gardner Museum. I'm Hrag Vartanyan, and this is the Art Movements podcast from Hyperallergic. In this, the final episode of the four-part series on clay and ceramics, we're talking to four experts who will offer us insight into a well-known Maya plate from the late classical period that includes not only a peculiar godhead in the center, but even more interesting is the unusual inscription around the edge. Dating to the 6th to 7th centuries, This plate is a relic of a civilization that flourished centuries before Europeans arrived to this continent. They're a culture that continues to exist in the world today through the legacy passed on to people like Maria. So in this episode, we're going to dive into the history and context of this object and understand not only what it says, but we're going to learn about the Maya, their culinary culture, and explore the worlds contained in this one beautiful orange and black earthenware dish. One of the curious aspects about the Maya I've discovered during the course of this research is how many people assume there are no Maya left today. Incredible, because we know that's not true, but the belief persists. I met with Maria in downtown Toronto And she started our conversation by unpacking her sacred bundle, which contains items she holds dear, including maize, a feather, antlers, and ribbons, among other things. Before we spoke, she burnt incense, which she told me was to welcome her ancestors into the conversation, since we'd be talking about them. Then she introduced herself. My Spanish name is Maria. My spirit name that my dad gifted me is name is Atalahom Itza, which means a little yellow bird named Atalahom. And it's the tiniest bird in our territory. And she goes on top of a tree and she starts to sing. And when she starts to sing, all the animals know that it's time to nourish themselves. And Itza means that I have a very clear, sharp mind, right? And... Um, one of my teachers and mentors, who's Hood Nishoni, who raised me for most of my life, she added that little piece. And so I'm the little bird that's very sharp, that people hear um, my voice and feel as if they've eaten. My people are known as the Popti or the Hakaltek of 
what today is known as Hakaltenango, which Hakaltenango is just means the land of the Hakaltek. And it's inside of what people now refer to as Guatemala and the northern highlands, western highlands. Our original name for our territory is Shakhla, which is an energy that's formed when the water speaks to the grandparents, the stones. There's an energy there in our sacred river, and when that energy comes about, it births us, our nation, our particular nation. Our grandfather is known as Balumkana, and he birthed our existence as well with his, his wife, Imosh. And so I come from what are known as the Deer Clan. My name from my people, they would know me as Wakib Dihash, which is a, sim- a glyph. It's a symbol of, it's not a glyph. The glyphs are how they're represented. <laughs> but it's a symbol of medicine in the flint and the volcanoes and the sharpness of the capacity to get rid of negative energy. But it's double-edged, so I can also hurt people, right? As much as you can heal, you can also hurt people. So that's how I would be known to our spiritual guides. To my people, I'm that little yellow bird. But I also carry another name as I come into adulthood. And that name that I received while I was fasting on the land for four days. So when we fast, we don't eat, we don't have fire, we don't drink water for four days and we pray. And when I was praying there, I received my staff to be able to dance and it's the name that I carry is the white deer woman and my job is to dance yeah so that's who I am I came here to the north to what we call northern turtle island to Haudenosaunee Anishinaabe territory and the Huron and the Wendat territory because there was a war in my country and so we came here to the north because my father was fighting for indigenous rights, land rights, and our existence. And so it was declared genocide, I believe, maybe four, four years ago or so. And so we came here to the north. And so when we came here to the north, it's protocol for indigenous people that when you enter anyone's territory, you build relationships with them, the indigenous people of the territory, in order to be able to live in a good way on the land that you're on. So my parents did that, my father did that. And since that time, I've been learning and engaging in um, culture and traditions and the rights and the history of what's happened here, as well as my own people. Maria talked to me about her family met with local Indigenous groups in Canada when they arrived and established a connection she continues to honour to this day. Her insight reiterates that the traditions of trade and hospitality that define so many Indigenous peoples on this continent have continued, even after the violence and erasure of colonization. One of the most beautiful things about Indigenous nations all over this continent is even though we're unique, distinct, there's this deep excitement when you see somebody, one of your relatives or cousins from a different nation, and so I uh, was, for example, in New York this weekend, share in uh, Onondaga territory, and I started to speak about the seed that birthed some of the corn on this continent, and the whole room just lit up, and they were so happy and so excited, and it reminded me of those first times when we met people up here in the north and the excitement that we get in our hearts to meet other indigenous people, but the process is always an exchange. The orange, red, and black-colored object sits quietly in a large display case of ancient American art on the first floor of the Canadian Museum. If you've seen it, you'll know that the large 40-centimeter wide plate, 16 inches for our American listeners, 
is eye-catching, partly because it features a large profile head of an unknown god wearing an elaborate plumed headdress. And around the deity is a band of glyphs along the rim. What it says is equally fascinating. So I invited Shuvan Boyd, Senior Manager of Education and Programs and an adjunct curator at the Gardner Museum to give us a little background and tell us more. Well, it's an incredible plate. That's, I guess, if you picture in your mind what a plate looks like, but it's earthenware colors. It's oranges and reds and blacks and yellows. And there's a ring of symbols around the outside of the vessel. And inside there's an image sort of in the center. And the image is very strange. People have a hard time sort of figuring out what it is. We think it's a bird deity and he's got a symbol on his forehead. And the symbols around the outside of the plate actually have been translated and can be read, telling us what the use of the plate was for and who it belonged to. and how it was used. And what does it say? So essentially, and it's, this changes quite a bit because as people have more understanding of the epigraphy, basically it says this plate was used to serve white venison tamales and it belonged to the son of a lord of the city of Elzots and he was a great ball player. And why would it be inscribed this way? Plates and dishes like this were probably, I guess you can think of them as political gifts. So it would have been to cement some kind of relationship, maybe to honor a coronation of some kind or a connection between two different groups, sort of a social, political story, I guess. So this would have been presented during the ceremonial event or would it be something that you would serve at a banquet? So that's a, that's a good question because a lot of this is conjecture and we're not sure for we don't know for sure because probably some of the stories are oral histories but what we can tell based on the writings and comparing it to other dishes and vessels that we have in our collection but also in collections all over the world it was probably a feast that occurred and it was kind of like it linked two communities together so the person who owns it then gets linked back to the person who made it, their city where they're from, versus the city where the gift recipient is from. So it it forms connections sometimes. And feasting is actually a big thing in the Maya community in the past, as well as many of the other ancient cultures represented in our museum. So the fact that it was used to serve white venison tamales Venison was a meat that was highly elevated within that community. It still is. And venison deer meat, you often find deer bones in middens and different things like that. So what is the thinking of why it would be white venison tamales written on the plate itself? Mm -hmm. Is there any idea why? It seems odd to me that it would be the actual dish Mm -hmm. rather than the occasion, Mm -hmm. you know, that would be marked on the plate. Yeah, I mean, it also, it doesn't go into great detail about who it exactly belonged to. It was the son of a lord of the city, so he is not listed as being a king or being of someone of royal status, so he was probably not direct in line to the throne kind of thing, so maybe that is some sort of symbol around that. And also, like, it's changing, like, the way you read the hieroglyphs, maybe there's something that we've missed that we haven't figured out yet. Mm-hmm. Abigraphers are always learning new things. Actually, if you look at our label upstairs, it says it's from the city of Washaktun, but now we say it's from Elzots, which are close cities in Guatemala in the Paten region, but they're not the same. So again, it's constantly changing. Maybe there's part of a glyph we haven't quite understood yet, and we'll get there eventually, hopefully. 
Ever since I encountered this plate, I have to admit that I've been thinking about the inscription nonstop. White venison tamales? Then, of course, the humble brag about his athletic skills. Some things never change, I guess. It all seemed to raise more questions than it answered. So I invited another specialist, James Doyle, from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. He's the assistant curator of the Art of the Americas, and he's also a specialist in Maya art. He knew about the plate. So I'll zoom out a little bit. The classic Maya civilization is roughly AD 250 to 900. This is flourishing in what is now southern Mexico, Guatemala, Belize, Honduras, El Salvador. And what really distinguishes the classic Maya from other civilizations in the ancient Americas is that we have a fully phonetic writing system. So they're writing in hieroglyphic words like we see in other places of the global past. And so this particular plate drew attention to scholarship because it has one of these inscriptions where a scribe actually composed dedicatory inscription on the plate. So it is sort of well known to specialists. I think Maya nerds would know about the Gardner plate, but I think it's also just, it's a beautiful work of art. And we can see that this really was a masterful painter who unfortunately didn't sign this particular work, but we know this was probably a very skilled artist. Let's talk about the artisans of the Maya world. Now, were they predominantly men? Were they women? Were they locals? Were these objects that would be commissioned far away and brought close? I mean, do we know any of this? We do. Fortunately for the classic Maya, it's the only case in the ancient Americas in which we know identities of artists because we have a small group that actually signed their works, including, I want to say 20-something ceramic painters. Wow. And we have probably over 100 sculptors' signatures. What we see ethnographically and in the sort of colonial period is that women would be the potters. And this is very common in other parts of the world as well. Mm -hmm. So we may have this sort of division between men and women in the women are coming up with these elaborate forms. They are actually making the recipes of the clay. We are seeing that they are sort of deciding how these vessels are going to be shaped. But then what we know from the signatures of the painters that we have, they seem to be men. And the reason we know that is because in the hieroglyphic language, the Maya were very specific about marking women. So there's a specific mm. glyphic prefix when you have the title of a woman. And so we don't see any of that in the painters or sculptors signatures. Wow. How about the materials? What materials are we talking about? Are they all local? Are they the ones that the Maya are known for? So the studies of sources of ceramic material seem to be that they're making local clay into pottery. However, we see a lot of trading. So we see a lot of gifting. We see sort of diplomatic relationships borne out in finding, for example, a plate with a specific inscription from one place, but in the tomb of a very far away place. So they're clearly, these kings and queens are trading these as prestige objects. Right. I would say also they're importing certain things for their recipes. And some periods of time, for example, they're importing volcanic ash to add as a temper for the ceramics. Or there are different types of ceramics that are using very specific fine clays that only come from a certain area. So there were a lot of things going on that we're not quite sure what the process was or the thought behind it, but it's clear that most Maya ceramics were made with local clays, even if they're then decorated in a style that's sort of more widespread. 
But I kept wondering about the white venison tamales and why the inscription was so specific. So I asked. Well, I'm pretty sure the tamales we see today are probably quite Americanized, just like, you know, all of the Mexican food, and I say that in quotes, Mm -hmm. that you can buy in different restaurants. It's not usually quite the same as, like, if you go to Mexico and you get these foods or different areas of the world. So I don't really know. But you do see, illustrated on other vessels that we have in our collection, piles of tamales or piles of food. And this is shown on some of our cylindrical vessels, which also have hieroglyphic writing, that might have a scene within a palace. And the hieroglyphs on those don't talk about what's happening. They talk about what the vessel function was. So it'd be like, this is his or her vessel for cacao or for chocolate or for frothy chocolate or for spicy chocolate. So it doesn't necessarily talk about the actual dish, but it talks about the function or who it belonged to or the role of the dish. The culture of cuisine tells us a lot about a civilization, what they value, who they respect, and how a community comes together for ceremonies, such as meals. Some things are universal, but others are culture-specific. So I reached out to an authority on the matter, Margaret Visser, the author of an excellent book titled The Rituals of Dinner, to ask about the peculiarities of this plate. Visser, for those who don't know, is an authority on the meaning of meals and table manners, namely the social mores that take place in dining rooms around the world. I reached out to the author by phone to ask her what she thought about this artifact. She reminded me that, well, it may seem unusual at first, but there are historical precedents. This business of putting onto the pottery who owned that plate, and also the potter, who made the plate and who painted the plate. The ancient Greeks did that on all their vases. They say this was made by so-and-so and painted by so-and-so and very often given as a prize for such an event. So even though the ancient Americans didn't know about the ancient Greeks, they were following the same kind of pattern of behavior, which I find very interesting, you know? So you find things that that are the same in many cultures, but they don't happen to be what we do at the moment. Having a person's name on is not strange. Having somebody who, who won it in a prize is not strange. But what is strange is having a pot with it written on, this is the dishes that is to be eaten on this plate. That I find very interesting. So you had a special tortoise if you ate a turtle, a green, before they killed all the turtles in order to eat them. But they had turtles at one point, and you'd have to have a special kind of plate to have it on. So there we are. There's a special dish for your, for sole and flat fish. They were that kind of dish, and you knew that that was what was there. If it had a cover on, you took the cover off, but you knew before you took the cover off that the dish that shape must be that. So therefore... They didn't write it on, as your early Americans did, but people did have a knowledge of this shape equals that food. Her point was, of course, that social context is key. Even in our own time, we can quickly recognize anything from fast food containers simply by their silhouettes or salt and pepper shakers by the number of holes on the top of each of the shakers. Many of these things would probably appear strange to civilizations 1,500 years in the future, but they make perfect sense to us. Our society trains us to distinguish these things. I turned to Shaban Boyd, 
to ask how rare such an object like this actually is. I've only worked a couple of seasons in Belize and I never found anything with hieroglyphs. It was a lot of broken pottery fragments that are undecorated. But, you know, I work in South America as well. I work in Ecuador and, you know, we find 500 pieces in the first 10 centimeters of a one by one meter unit, but none of them are decorated. On the other hand, we did find part of a decorated Inca Aribalo as well. So I think it depends on what you're looking for and what the area that you're excavating. So probably in elite tombs and stuff like that, where you would find ceramics along with other material, you might find more of these high status dishes. But if you're looking to learn more about the everyday people and where they lived and what they did, you're not going to find decorated pieces like these. The thing about this plate that seems unusual to me is also the fact that it's not clear who the god is in the middle and if there's any relation at all with the text. It's actually quite disconnected, which is sort of a strange thing because the text talks about the function of the plate in its contemporary context. But then in this sort of central scene, you have this very obscure mythological reference to something that isn't quite that well understood. So basically you have a deity head and profile. The deity is missing its mandible, which often you have these jawless deities, which... What's that all about? I couldn't tell you right away, but you can see this sort of scrolls coming out of its mouth. There it has this deity in particular might have aspects of what we know as the rain god, who is labeled on other vessels as Chalk, the name Chalk. He has this kind of protruding tooth. He's got some sort of breath scroll coming out of his nose. And often there's a way the Maya really like to show you physically that people are breathing or gods are breathing. And so there'll be a bead or something coming out of the nose. Right. Was that also true for speaking? Yes. The sort of speaking bubbles that appear. So we often have speech scrolls that look like kind of comic book. um, Yeah. What is that all about? Like, why would they represent somebody being able to see someone speaking or breathing? Yeah. I think it's about sound because we actually have... Have, there's a vessel in the St. Louis Art Museum that shows a ball court scene. And it seems that the artist wanted to show that it's making a lot of noise. There's echoes. So you see the huh. type of speech scrolls coming off of the architecture. Wow. And so there are certain clues that it's about showing that that person is speaking in the present and it's not a caption. It's not labeling the person or labeling the title. It's really a more spoken word representation. And we actually have... It's rarer, but we do have first and second person addressing each other in some of the painted scenes. That seems so unusual because they're capturing the auditory landscape, not just the physical landscape. Exactly. I can't think of a lot of ancient civilizations that spend time doing that. Mm -hmm. It's pretty unique. Yeah, and they're, they're capturing both sound and in other contexts, really the breath. And you see the ancient sort of defacement of sculptures goes after the nose and the mouth. Because there was the idea that this image of the person would have had that breath because they had this representation of breath. Often when you see Maya monuments, that part is hacked away. Is there anything about the table etiquette or the table accoutrements or the vessels that would really stand out to a contemporary American audience? Like something that we wouldn't expect to see on a dinner plate Um, or on a dinner table. I can't think of anything. It was probably much more like a sort of Roman style banquet where you have large benches that are draped with tapestries or jaguar pelts and then sort of people are reclining around. That's kind of the sense that we get. You're sitting on the floor. There's not a sense of a dining table. It would be during the day, I'm guessing. Actually, I would think probably during the evenings. I think the day, well, I just have this like joke that I think they were just sitting around all day 
complaining about the heat because it's so hot there. <laughs> Waiting so, for the sun to go yeah. down so they could have their feast. Some of these scenes are specifically marked as night scenes with torchlight, for Got example. It. And or, I mean, obviously it could be in a darkened room that would need a torch even during the day. So they don't make it so clear if it's day or night. The conversation quickly turned to other culinary practices of the Maya. And he had quite a few unusual examples. What's fascinating about the Maya vessels is that we have these sort of proper names for them. And so we know that this is a plate, for example, and then they called it a plate. And we have other drinking cups that are more cylindrical in shape and would definitely have been drinking cups because that's the name that has been deciphered. And you can actually see the etymology of it coming from the dictionaries that the Spanish made of the colonial Mayan languages in the area. So they've kind of traced it back once they've been able to get these syllables deciphered. There are drinking cups that are probably for chocolate or maize drinks, as I said. We have large plates like this that would be for serving food. We have some really strange forms that we're not really sure. There's one that I can think of that it looks like the opening for the vessel is at the bottom, and it's placed in another bowl that's kind of shallow, and it's just very unclear. I mean, it comes from a very specific, probably about in the 4th century, but I couldn't tell you what they're doing with it. I mean, there's right. not been enough residue analysis to see what are they eating out of this? What is this? Right. We also see pots that were used for agave or other types of fermented drinks. And actually, one in the Mets collection we have, it's probably used to hold pulque or something, but then there are scenes around it in which there is a woman helping a man administer an alcoholic enema to himself. Yeah, I it, saw that one. <laughs> I mean, an alcoholic enema captured on a plate for eternity. Yes. Why? Um, I think, you know, this was a one way of consuming this very special beverage that took effect really quickly. And I think it was about achieving a different state of consciousness. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I having an enema of alcohol seems like probably the fastest way ever to get drunk. Yeah. So there's clearly something else going on there. I have not tried it, so I cannot <laughs> I, I've <laughs> testify. I've heard. I've heard. <laughs> but yeah, when I was in college, Mary Miller, who is an art historian of the Maya, she came and gave a lecture. And I'll never forget this line because she said, the Maya like to get drunk. And once they were too drunk to drink anymore, they got out the enemas. And so it's clearly... Wow. This, so it's clearly this idea that, you know, you really... That's commitment. You really want to get to another level. You so, want to get so drunk where you're not even consuming it orally. Yes. Wow. So there are a couple of scenes of enema taking, and we actually have sometimes the bone tubes survive in tombs, and we see the images of people. Wait, with, they did enemas with bone tubes? Probably, yeah. Or reeds or something like that. You blew my <laughs> mind a little bit there. So I'm guessing they're not having white venison tamales that way. I would think that would be quite difficult to do. It's more like liquid <laughs> liquid diet. But, you know, we do see specifications about recipes, too, of different recipes of chocolate. You know, I think with more discoveries and more texts that come to light. We see actually dishes for chili peppers, for things that are garnishes and adding a little spiciness to white venison tamales, perhaps. Sounds delicious. So now, while some of my questions have been answered, I asked the gardener curator, if there was something about this plate that she wishes she had the answer for. Oh my gosh. I wish I knew who used it. I wish I knew if it was used, if somebody actually ate off of it, and why exactly it was given to someone. You know, I mean, not in our museum or our collection, but ceramic cylinders have been found with lids on them 
and they scrape out the interior and they find, they do chemical analysis and they find things like theobromine and caffeine. Those are the chemical makeups of chocolate. So when people do and find those, they tend to think, well, the dish said it was used for chocolate. We found chocolate residue. Therefore, this tamale dish must have been used for tamales because, you know, the one we tested said it was. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Is there anything about the dish that surprises you or you'd like to sort of convey to people that, you know, might be curious? Because I think sometimes people need sort of help understanding historical artifacts mm -hmm. in different ways. Is there any help you can offer to people? Well, I think people have to sort of look at it. Like in the 80s, 70s and 80s, whenever materials like these were found, there has been some conservation done on these objects. So maybe it is not as in great shape as we think it is. Just the conservator was really good and you can't tell. I think nowadays, mainly people don't fill in the missing spots. Um, but you know what would be really cool is if we had a picture of it next to an image of it under ultraviolet light so you could see where the repairs were done. Mm -hmm. So I think when somebody, I mean, we get a lot of people surprisingly that come into the museum and like, well, these are all fakes. These can't be real. Really? Yeah. Why would they say that? Because they're so beautiful and they're so, they're in such great, appear to be in such great shape. So they just assume that they're, they're reproductions or they're not real. Like so many people, like from kids to adults, and then they don't believe you when you tell them they are real because they just, they look so, not that they look modern, but they just, people have a hard time believing some of our pieces are 5,000 years old or 1,000 years old because I think in their mind, where we are technologically now, people can't imagine that people knew as much as they did in the past or had figured systems out that we almost forgot about and we had to reinvent. So I think it's hard for people, they think of something as being ancient and old, they think it should be crumbling and not in great shape and they don't give the people from the past credit enough, I feel. The archaeologists, curators, and cultural historians all had their own perspectives on this important plate. But I wanted to know what Maria thought. So I showed her an image of this item, which she had never seen before. So my initial reaction when I look at it, I think about, for my people, what you see here, for example, is a sacred bundle, right? So there's feathers, there's some clay items, there's antlers, and there's some seeds. So all these things are gifted to me throughout my journey, depending on what my spirit needed and what my spirit wanted to bring into the world. And so when I look at that plate, it's not so much a thought process, it's a feeling process that begins. And you start to feel the ancestors, eh? But for me, there's also a bit of sadness because that was part of somebody's bundle. That's a very sacred plate that you have there. You can tell, even when you say white deer, that's the, the white. So we would, so my spirit name is Sakche, which comes from Sakbe, which is the white, the white road, the sacred white road. And then that journey, and then Che comes from my people's way of saying deer. And so that tells me that that's a very sacred animal. So that plate there had a, I'm guessing it had a ceremonial significance not only for the individual who made it, but also for the individual who it was gifted to. Yeah, so if you see here, everything has its own little little plate, something that you're putting it on. And so um, the first question that comes to mind when I look at that plate is, what process did you use to excavate it? 
Yeah. Where did you get it from? And who told you you can take it? That's the first thing that I wonder. And then there's other sadness that comes forward because it's so far away from home. Yeah, so it's it's really far away from home. And so when we look at things like that, it's not so much the plate, but the ancestors who that plate is connected to. Both the ones that are alive and the ones that have gone and had a relationship with that plate. So there's a lot of sadness because it's in a museum. <laughs> it's in a museum and it's not in its territory and at the very most through the glyphs and through the through the symbols you can through your own filter of perception the archaeologist or anthropologist or whoever can tell the story that they perceive but they can't tell you the spiritual and emotional significance of that plate yeah they can tell you a story (laughs) you see a clear through line from the past to the present in this Mm -hmm. is that what i'm understanding the most important thing so it's virtually impossible to look at and observe anything without impacting it with your perception western science does a really good job of claiming that they can be objective or that they can somehow study other people and they do that because the one thing they've yet to do is study themselves right and what it actually means to be human and so even in quantum physics we understand that there's the observer effect that the minute that you look at something you shift you shift it right the first thing for indigenous people which I'm so thankful to um, quantum science because it's been able to get close enough to our people's understanding, is that I guess the smallest particles, which are atoms, yes, are 99.9999% pure energy. And the only physical part of it is 0.00001 physical matter. So everything is more nothing than it is something. But in the Western world, because they tend to be closed off to their emotions or to that spiritual connection of ancestors. They focus on that 0.0001% of physical matter, and then they analyze it, and then they look at it, and then they design a story based on it. For our people, we're more, as most indigenous nations, are focused on the 99.999% pure energy. So we're more connected to the world that you can't see versus the world that you can see. So those two combine to connect you to something greater than who you are, the world that you can't see. When I asked her about the object at the gardener and what she hopes museums do with items such as this, she changed this topic slightly and offered a chilling reminder that the life of the descendants of the Maya, well, they're not purely historical and they're very relevant to our own lives today. In fact, she reminded me, They're in the news, whether you realize it or not. It's so important for me to tell you that even as we're having this conversation right now, there is hundreds of Mayan kids that are being held in detention centers on the U.S. border. Seven of those were Mayan who have now died, little babies, little kids. One young girl was killed at the border unarmed, very young girl who comes from the Mum Nation, which is one of our eldest uh, nations and very important to our people because they've taught the younger ones a lot, including my nation. We hold them in great honor. So seven kids have died today in 2019 in what 
including U.S. government officials, are calling concentration camps. And I, I believe that's exactly what they are, even when you describe them. So what allows that to happen? What kind of belief or value or attitude do you have to hold in order for that to be seen as okay? It's a human life. And so right now there's many organizations working also, and I was in Arizona with the Mine International Link working to translate some of the videos on their rights in the different Maya languages because the assumption is that they're Mexican and people don't realize that many indigenous Maya people do not speak Spanish. We don't come from Spain. We come from our territories, and we roamed and moved freely in this entire continent. How I know that is because I received one of our seeds from the Cayuga Nation here in the north. So I know that that you trace the corn, you trace the Maya. So when you look at something very much in today's contemporary world happening to my people, my nations, and many of those kids, for example, that are leaving their communities are coming from communities in which Canadian mining companies are causing drought. And it's not sustainable. And there is military presence as well because of the mining companies and because of the government of Guatemala. When you look at Guatemala itself, the majority of people are mine descendants, are indigenous descendants. But if you were to ask them, they would say no, right? A lot of them. And in fact, there's so much racism towards indigenous people within our own territories, within our own countries, within our own people that's internalized. So why does that happen? Why does all of that happen? Because we've been told a story. A very special thanks to Sun Sun for providing the music for this special series. The instrumental track you hear on this episode is fresh from his studio. I'm Hudag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening to the final in this four-part series produced by Hyperallergic in conjunction with the Gardner Museum and their community art space, a platform for experimentation and socially engaged art that inspires artists and the public to engage in social action. You can learn more at gardnermuseum.on.ca. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and subscribe to Art Movements on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.